Hallelujah. All right, so um, every one of God's appointed times are calendared, date-specific events on which key happenings within his larger redemptive story have either happened or are yet to happen as his larger redemptive story plays out. So as we honor each of his appointed times as we're commanded to do, we do it for a couple reasons. One, we do it out of obedience. And um, I'm never going to tire of, so if you get tired of it, I don't care. I'm never going to tire of reminding us that the way that we know the God of the Bible is by keeping his commandments. That's 1 John chapter 2, starting around verse 3 or so. He says, by this we know that we know the God of the Bible if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. All right, so one of the ways that we protect ourselves against being deceived into following a God of our own making is by keeping the commandments that are written of the God of the Bible. So we keep the holy days out of obedience just because we know God. Hallelujah for that. But, but one of the things that all of us who have made an effort and an intention to walk in his ways, one of the things that we can all testify to is that all of God's ways have purpose behind them. There's a reason behind everything that he's asked us to do. And, and, and the fruit that comes from walking in God's ways, fruit of protection and peace, and purpose and provision and pasture alone that's what we can all testify to can we not there's incredible good fruit that comes when we take the one true living god as the as the master and creator and definer of all things who has perfect wisdom and perfect understanding who has informed by his perfect wisdom and perfect understanding informed basically every area of life in his word when we choose to value his commandments and his statutes and his precepts and his judgments and his instructions and apply them to our life do we not experience great fruit from that Holy cow, what a gift. So much so that eventually we come to see God's ways as the priceless gift that they are. We see his word as the priceless gift that it is. We see his spirit as the greatest promise ever to us. I want to read one of one of the 
paragraphs from Psalm 119 because I, I just think it's so beautiful and helpful often to be reminded what God's word does for us when we choose to apply it. This is just one of the one of the kind of paragraphs in Psalm 119. I'm going to read 97 through 104. It says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. What a beautiful, beautiful words. To the gift that God's ways are, to the advantage that they give us as sheep of his pasture. The great fruit that is available to us if we would just continue to recognize that God is right, that his ways are perfect, and every time we choose them, good fruit comes. So as it relates to the Moedim, or God's appointed times, one of the things that we found, and it's um, definitely our family's testimony um, as fruit that has come over time, meaning as we have kept these appointed times for multiple years now, one of the things that we have come to see is that more revelation comes each year as to why we keep these times depth of understanding, revelation as to the bigger picture, revelation as to um, the perfection of the prescriptions. All of these things have come over time with multiple years of just digging in and being obedient. And, um, and as, as the revelation has increased, not only do we see God's appointed times as gifts, which they are, but we, but we gain an understanding of why he's given us these gifts. And, and in particular this year, the, the reality is that these days, they teach us and they point us towards, and they, um, they basically help us to better understand and even take hold of the gospel, which is to say the larger redemptive story, the creation-wide plan of God. And we had a short discussion a couple weeks ago, um, last time we gathered when we talked about sharing the gospel, one of the things that was kind of spoken about in, in my family is, is, is we don't really understand what that means to share the gospel. And even to say like the gospel, like, dad, what do you really mean by the gospel? And I think that if most in the church were honest, that's probably a pretty common question like when you say share the gospel what do you mean or when you say 
the larger redemptive story, what are you talking about? Here's what I, here's what I want everyone to be clear. From the youngest in here, probably Jackson, to the oldest, I won't say. <laughs> Every one of you know the gospel. Did you know that? Every one of you know and can communicate the gospel with clarity. Which is to say that the larger redemptive story of scripture from cover to cover, the manifold wisdom of God, literally his plan for all of creation, everyone in this room could communicate it. You know, you know how? All you gotta do is remember the holy days. Why? Because the holy days perfectly reveal and communicate the entire gospel message. And this will come even more naturally and more comfortably and with more clarity and understanding the more years that we honor the days because this is their very purpose. But think about it with me. This literally is the larger redemptive story. It is the gospel. Christ had to die as Passover. He had to be raised as first fruits. First fruits from, of what? The dead? The firstborn from amongst the dead? Why? Because there's going to be a resurrection of the dead at the final trumpet when Christ returns. Today we're going to talk about Pentecost within this story, so I'll skip it for now. But after the thousand-year reign of Christ, we, the great right throne of judgment, everyone that's ever lived will be stand before God and be judged, and then we will enter into the age to come in which God's plan to reconcile all things back to himself through Christ, make all things new, will be fulfilled. And the culmination will be a new heaven and a new earth. So to give the body of Christ, which is the mouthpiece for the manifold wisdom of God, perfect tools to communicate what we're being called to communicate for the purpose of harvest within the larger redemptive story, the holy days communicated perfectly. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? Especially when you're three years into celebrating them, honoring them, recognizing them, taking hold of them, the whole gospel just makes sense. The whole plan is known aspects within the plan we get. All of this is, is intended to like align us with the Father. Because we're born again and adopted to participate in the Master's business. So what a beautiful gift the Master has given us to communicate his business by each of these times, not only as teaching tools, but as specific events that have happened, events that we remember, and events that are yet to come that we anticipate. All of it communicates the gospel so that we can know the master's business. Now contrast that to the traditions of man. Right, as we, as we talked about at at um, Passover, Peter in uh, 1 Peter 1, 
18 and 19, when he's speaking about Christ as the Passover, he says, well, remember that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of the unblemished lamb, but redeemed from what? The aimless traditions of your fathers. Aimless, I'm sorry, the aimless conduct that are the traditions of your fathers. So the, the um, traditions of man, especially as it relates to the things of God, are all counterfeits. They're all deceptions. They're all based on lies. They're all based on tradition. They're all based on the flesh and appealing to the flesh. And they're all aimless in what they achieve, right? At best, they're aimless. At worst, they are incredibly confusing and dishonoring to God because they connect the God of the Bible to things the God of the Bible has said specifically, never connect me to him, right? So, so how beautiful is the prescription of the holy days as contrasted to the traditions of men? One, teach us perfectly the gospel message, both from an understanding and a taking hold of its standpoint, and they protect us from the opposite. One aligns us with the Father, and the other alienates us from the Father. One connects us to what the plan is, the other distracts us from what the plan is. That makes sense? So there's incredible, as in every one of God's commandments and statutes and judgments and precepts, there's incredible good fruit that comes when we stick with what's written. So, so today we're going to um, discuss Pentecost. Because it's tomorrow. And I think God wants to connect a couple dots for us today about Pentecost's purpose within the larger redemptive story so that we can better understand why we're gathering tomorrow and what we're going to do when we gather tomorrow. Because um, as we said, all spring feasts, all, all spring feasts, uh, first fruits uh, happens within the middle of unleavened bread. I didn't put that up there today, but um, they all represent events within the larger redemptive story that have already happened. So these are things that we do as a remembrance, but we remember them within the context of the larger redemptive story. We remember them within the why. Why did they have to take place as it relates to this full gospel message? Right, so that's the question. Why did Pentecost have to happen within the full gospel message? Right, and I say that question, I ask that question because we know that when Christ was raised at first fruits, he was the first fruits of what? A, a new creation, right? A brand new humanity, which are ultimately all those whom Father God has chosen. All will be gathered, all will be harvested, if you want to look at it that way, which is biblical. All will be raised from the dead, and all will exist forever with God on a new earth. Christ is the first fruits of that, and 50 days from first fruits, Pentecost happens. So I think it's safe to say, let's go to Revelation 5 real quick. A passage that we read often. 
because it's so good. One of my favorites. Revelation 5, verse 1 through 10. Someone want to read that for us real loud, please? Who's sitting on the throne? Father God. What's in his hand? The big scroll. Right? I think it's super accurate to say that it's the gospel plan. It's the larger redemptive story. It is the creation-wide will of Father God. No one's found worthy to open the scroll. No one has found, is found worthy to activate the plan, to initiate the gospel, the good news. Go ahead, Angie. Amen. So, so what a beautiful, what beautiful text to communicate the significance of Christ's work on the cross. That it was his life as the true unblemished lamb that qualified him to go to the cross and make atonement. To be our sin offering. And by that sacrifice, he's able to take the scroll and loose the seals. So he activates the gospel. He activates the larger redemptive story. He initiates it. Right? So, so at first fruits, something super significant happened. First fruits is offered to the Father, right? As prescribed, it always has to be. First fruits is offered to the Father. And then we have a waiting period, right? A prescribed, specifically numbered waiting period of what? 50 days. Right? During that 50 days, the church has not yet been activated. Right? The church is doing what? Waiting. Jesus said, wait. So, so we'll get more revelation on why 50 days. Susie and I have talked about it. It probably has something to do with Jubilee. All God's numbers mean something, and they all connect and layer, and Jubilee was 50 years, and it always 
um, um, signified a cancellation of all debt, right? Jubilee, amazing, beautiful picture of, of what, when the first fruits is offered to the Father, what, what comes next? Okay, but, but recognizing Pentecost within the larger redemptive story has to be done within the larger redemptive story, right? And, and, and when we look at the full gospel plan, what we see starts at Pentecost and basically happens from that original Pentecost to when Christ returns at the final trumpet, a lot of people call the church age, right? Some people have probably heard that. Therefore, they uh, um, often call Pentecost the church's birthday. I don't know if some of y'all have heard that. I've seen it advertised uh, many times. I don't have a problem calling the age from Pentecost to Trumpets the, the church age. I think that's biblically accurate. I don't even have a problem calling Pentecost the birth, the birth of the church. I don't have a problem with that either. I think that's basically biblically accurate but that's where usually where that line of thinking and that line of leading ends for me because what churches then do is is they take that truth and they immediately interject a tradition of man which is what we're going to celebrate a birthday so every year we're going to get together and celebrate with a party the church's birthday on pentecost and mark my words you'll start seeing it the problem is, is that that is not prescribed and that has absolutely nothing to do with the actual purpose of Pentecost. All right, so we got we to gotta step aside and lay aside the traditions of man and we got to go back to what's written because the prescriptions are all perfect. The instruction is perfect. The why is perfect. And as we obey it correctly, we receive the revelation that it's intended to give, the understanding that it's intended to give, and in this case, the, the very specific application piece that God is calling us to. So the question is, is why? What is Pentecost and what is it, what, what, what's it about? Within the large redemptive story, after Jesus is resurrected as first fruits, the 50-day wait is over, Pentecost happens at its perfect appointed time, exactly 50 days after the resurrection. What happens? Okay, let's read it. We never, we never need guess. We always only read and stick with what's written. It's all there for us. All we have to do is read carefully. Someone please, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I know we've read it before. I know we've read it multiple times. But faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We are sanctified by the word of God. So I pray one more time as we read these eight verses, Lord, that you would sanctify us by them. That we would hear them in the spirit, receive them in the spirit, and understand them in the spirit. Who's got it? Michael, go ahead.
promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, I asked them, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power with the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay, we know that that promise was fulfilled a few short days later. The text says when the day of Pentecost had what? Fully come. Because everything happens on God's timing. Right? When the day of Pentecost had fully come, that promise is fulfilled. But let's just think about the promise itself to help answer the question why, as it relates to the larger redemptive story, which is why all of these times are given, which is why all of these happenings had to come. Why did Pentecost have to happen? Jesus literally just said it. Because you are going to be empowered by the Spirit to be a witness. Okay? This is the birth of the church. I'm in agreement. This is the beginning of the church age. I am in agreement. But we do not recognize Pentecost to have a church birthday party. We recognize Pentecost to say something is given on this date to empower the church to be a faithful witness. Why? What is the purpose of the church age? Listen to me. What's the purpose of the church age? So we can have sermons and services? Right? So we can get together every week and have a Bible book report? And light show concert like seriously we gotta we gotta understand the the purpose of the church and the purpose of the church age within the larger redemptive story otherwise we're gonna get stuck doing what playing church and going through the motions and I'm out if that's all people want to do There's a specific reason the church is birthed on this date. And Jesus just said what it is. It's to be a witness. Right? And the witness is for another purpose, or the purpose of the church age. Which is harvest, is it not? What's the purpose of the church? The harvest. What's the purpose of the church, saints? The harvest. Why do we get together? Harvest. Why do we pray? Harvest. Why do we learn? Harvest. Why do we give? Harvest. Why do I teach? Harvest. There's no other reason for the church. There's no other reason for it. And if we lose sight of the why of the church, we will never understand Pentecost, ever. Okay, so, so there's a couple of dots that the Lord wants connected th this morning. And the first one is um, 
what it means to be a faithful witness. All right, I know this is not a new topic for us as a congregation. I know this is something we talk about regularly, but there are um, a couple of fine-tuned points that, that the Holy Spirit is connecting today as it relates to being a faithful witness. And the first one is that faithful witnesses are offensive. Okay? Most of the church, as it relates to their expression of being a witness, is it or is it not essentially, usually, do a little better? Polish up the outside a little bit. Try a little bit harder to be a little bit better. Be nice. Be a little less worldly. Have a few less idols. Have a little bit better marriage. Right, let's just be totally honest. Most of the church's expression of a faithful witness is basically about hunkering down and just doing a little better. And I want to argue that that has nothing to do with being a faithful witness. And my argument is going to start with the one who the Word of God calls faithful and true witness. And who's that? Christ. Called that many times. Most memorably for me in Revelation chapter 3 in the letter to the lukewarm church. He is called true and faithful witness. All right, think about Christ's witness. What was Christ witness to? Do we see as an example of being a true and faithful witness? Do we see Jesus going around just being a little bit nicer? Do we see Jesus just setting a slightly higher moral standard? Think about it. Do we see Jesus' witness being defensive in nature? Pushing behavior modification, pushing everyone just get along. Right? Or especially those of us that are in John right now. What was Jesus so adamant about being a witness to? Think about it. What does he say over and over and over and over and over whenever 
anyone sees Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, what is he adamant that he is bearing witness to? When you see me, you see Father. Is that not almost the only message he shares? He's so adamant about it. When you see me, you see the Father. When I speak, you hear the Father. Whenever you see me doing anything, that's God's plan, and that's God's will, and that's what the Father's doing. Is that not his only message? This is the one the Bible calls true and faithful witness. He was adamant. All he did was the master's business. And I know I get fired up when I communicate this because so much false teaching and false preaching happens in today's church that that preaches a fake Jesus that is almost at odds with the God of the Old Testament. When the real Jesus of the Bible always only said, I do not come on my own accord. I do not speak my own words. I do not have my own commandments. I do not teach my own doctrine. I do not have my own plan or my own will or my own purposes. I am literally just here because of the Father. It's only his plan. It's only his will. I am merely the sacrifice, the servant, the vessel, the representative, the apostle, the prophet, the minister, the unblemished lamb. And his life was spent destroying the works of the enemy with an offensive focus of the master's business, which is what? God's going to get everyone God's chosen. And anyone who is going to be a true and faithful witness is going to be submitted and surrendered to the master's business. So for us to say, saints, that we are here to be faithful witnesses, we got to get way, way past being a little nicer. And a little less worldly. We got to get way past hunkering down and hoping our quiet little life is going to somehow bring people to the Lord. That is not the model that Christ gave. And the reality is until we get our head around this truth that when people hear us, I know this is going to sound crazy, they need to hear God. 
when people see us, they need to see God. When people see what we're doing, they need to understand it's God's will. When people take what we have to offer, they need to get him. Not us. Trying a little harder. It is... And this is where the, the second dot is connected. The first dot is offensive, is a faithful witness is offensive. The second dot is that offensiveness is, is specifically partaking in the divine nature of, of God. Okay, so obviously when, I'm, when I say offensive, I, I'm not talking about I'm talking about the opposite of defensive. God of the Bible doesn't play defense. Can we all be in agreement there? The God of the Bible has no fear, has no hesitation, has no enemies worthy to be feared or defended against. The God of the Bible is only offensive, only going after his will, only going after his plan, only walking out his agenda. So as we partake in his divine nature, we are offensive taking what the enemy has stolen defeating all of his deceptions winning back everything that he has stolen in order for us to walk that out it takes an empowerment by the spirit to partake in his divine nature has the Lord been teaching us that this is possible right up until this time pray hallelujah Absolutely perfect, amazing timing to recognize that partaking in the divine nature is literally what being a faithful witness is all about. So we read um, First Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter 1, and, and this list of, of the attributes of the divine nature that all of us, when we walk in and partake in that divine nature, these are all in place. We live virtuous life because God's ways are perfect and we let him be God and we just obey. We walk in knowledge of what he said is that, that life, self-control and perseverance, all based on piety towards God and devotion to God above all other devotions. Manifestation of walking his divine nature is going to be a love for the church and this expression of his love, we called agape. When Christ says wait in the upper room because the church is about to be born and activated, but the, but the church is being birthed for a purpose. And that perfect purpose is to carry out the Father's plans. So in order to carry out his plans, you need to be empowered to walk in his nature. And when you walk in his nature, all of these things will be 
representative of your life as a witness, but you have to recognize that the tip of the spear is this agape love. So when in the in the and Paul or um, Peter says that when you when you walk in all of these things, you will be neither. You guys remember this? Barren or unfruitful. Walking in the divine nature accomplishes things. Not because we're good, but because God is. All we're called to be is faithful. And a witness. And here's the, the point of clarity that, that we must, 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 must hear to understand why Pentecost had to happen and to understand why we're going to gather tomorrow, we must hear this. That the only way for you and I to be faithful in our witness is to live impossible lives. The only way is to have impossible marriages. The only way to be a faithful witness is to have impossibly raised kids and to walk in impossible humility and to have impossible compassion and impossible generosity and impossible self-control. It's the only way to be a faithful witness is to live an impossible life. A life that is not possible, but by the Spirit of God, empowering us to walk in His divine nature as Christ did. And as I speak that, does it help to recognize or answer the question, why did Pentecost have to happen? I hope so. Because the real church is impossible. Because the real church is the body of Christ, is it not? The body of Christ's head is Christ. So what does that example look like? Well, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11 says that God is the head of Jesus. Right? So Jesus' faithful witness to his head is when I speak you hear God's words. When I move, you see God's plan. I'm only here to do his work. I'm only here to be a vessel. I'm only here to be a representative. I'm only here to be a minister. I'm only here to be a true and faithful witness that the God of the Bible is the one true living God. So if Christ is the head of the church, then his body responds the exact same way the body carries out the desires of the head. So when we talk, they hear Jesus. When we move, they know his plan. When we give, they receive him in impossible ways. And if what you're thinking right now is, my marriage is not that way, if what you're thinking right now is, my patience is not that way, if what you're thinking right now is, my kids are not that way, then you are perfectly understanding what I'm saying. 
and you are perfectly now prepared to receive what's to be given at Pentecost because this is not about us. We'll never be good enough. We'll never try hard enough. We'll never know enough. It's not about us. All we do is stick with what's written. And what's written is come together on this day and you're going to be empowered. Hallelujah. So beautiful. So, um, as I said, all of these things are foundational to the divine nature and walking in the divine nature, but the tip of the spear really is love. In the tip of the spear and understanding it that way has greatly helped me over the last month to recognize the offensive nature of the love we're being called to that this is a weapon, a love weapon, to destroy the works of the enemy and to take back what's been stolen. Right, so the agape love by definition is, first and foremost, it's an outflow of God's sovereign will. It's important to know that it's an outflow of God's sovereign will because Agape is an act of, in, of intention. It's not a feeling. It's a decision. That decision is often going to be, or that act is often going to be selfish in nature. It's going to be undeterred by condition. It's going to either be one side or the other, reaping or sowing, and ultimately for the master's business, which is harvest. So if we just think about the cross as the ultimate act of agape love, does it match or meet each of this criteria? Was the cross first and foremost an outflow of the sovereign will of the Father? Hallelujah. How much so? It was done before the foundations of the earth because it would be the ultimate way in which God would be glorified. By the Son and the Son glorified by God. The cross is the ultimate and center of God's intentions. So it's an outflow of his will. It was an act of intention. Did Jesus want to go to the cross? How do we know? No. How do we know he didn't want to go to the cross? He asked for it to be taken away. Was that because Jesus was fearful of crucifixion? Please don't ever think that. The Lion of the tribe of Judah was not afraid of crucifixion or of anything that man could do to him. He did not want to take the full wrath from the Father. He did not want to take the crushing of the winepress of God's anger. So no, he didn't want to go to the cross. His going to the cross was not an act of emotion or feeling. It was an act of intention based on the Father's purpose because he only did the will of the Father. And when we saw what Jesus was doing, we knew what the Father was up to because he was a true and faithful witness. Hallelujah. Was it selfless in nature? Yep. Was it undeterred by conditions? Yep. Did he know that many, many, many would see what he would do and still say no? Yep. 
Has that been happening ever since he laid his life down? Yep. Not deterred by conditions. Was that a sowing? Yes. Unless a kernel goes into the ground and dies, it cannot be reproduced. And was that ultimately about getting together so we can have vacation Bible schools and church potlucks and make sure Christian rock stars get book deals and record deals and big buildings could be built? It's all about harvest. So one of the beautiful things that the Lord has done for us several years now is as we've approached Pentecost, the Spirit has been leading us in teachings to understand the nature of the witness we're going to be called to in the year to come. You guys recognize that? What an absolutely beautiful truth. How intimately the Spirit is and willing he is to lead if we will just listen. Pentecost is about being empowered from on high to be a faithful witness. Well, the Spirit's going beyond the general be a faithful witness to say, this is what your assignment's going to look like. This is what you're going to be empowered to do in the year to come. As, you know, evidenced last year so unbelievably by by together on Pentecost, praying that we would be, this is last year, praying to be a faithful witness in the midst of suffering. Just unbelievable to me. How perfect the Spirit knows what's going on. And how perfectly He prepares His own for the assignment that's coming. So our assignment that's coming is, to me, super exciting. It's to love like Jesus loved. Empowered to be a faithful witness to walk out agape love. Beautiful. So that's what we're going to do tomorrow. Is we're going to gather. The prescription is to bring an offering. Our offering will be praise. To have a gathering and no customary work. And at that gathering, we are literally going to pray for empowerment from on high to love like Jesus loved. As an expression of our witness in the coming year. And as the word says, we are to be in one accord, one heart and one mind when we pray. So are we there? Do we have clarity? Do we have any questions? Okay. Well, Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, even further unify the hearts of your saints at NCC to be truly in one accord tomorrow when we pray. And we pray and ask for your ears when we pray, we recognize that what you're calling us to is impossible. We recognize that what you are calling us to is beyond us. 
We recognize that we have need for empowerment from on high. And we declare even ahead of time that we are gathering to pray for that. We pray that you would hear us and that we would be empowered. In Jesus' name, amen.